You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Walter Mondale knew he had to throw a pass. That was the opinion of Walter Mondale's advisor, Mike Ford, during the 1984 presidential campaign, when Mondale faced the inevitable task of running against President Reagan. Not only was he going to trail the popular and skilled politician, Reagan, Mondale showing up only in the high 30s in most polls at this time against the president. But Mondale was not even the undisputed nominee of the Democrats at this point, that he had to consider a vice president. He had the delegates, but unlike Hillary Clinton, Mondale's opponent, Gary Hart, waited to take the issue to the convention, a fact that Hillary supporters would bring out this year when they were told that Hillary didn't do enough for Obama prior to her speech, which certainly ended that question. He had to throw a pass in this situation. Now, as an unapologetic Jets fan and football watcher, uh, I know what that means, so it's probably worth to explain that in football, uh, throwing a pass is a little more risky. You can also run the ball, which is kind of conservative. Mondell, the former vice president, was liberal in his politics, but conservative as a person. He was very predictable, and many in the media said he was known for running the ball. Gary Hart, who was the surprise winner of many primaries in 1984, had used that to his advantage, appearing as the symbol of the new politics. So when Ted Kennedy, who was now, prior to the Democratic Convention, negotiating between Mondale and Hart, offered Mondale a solution to pick Hart as his vice president, seemed like the choice that everyone would expect. And therefore, that's exactly what Walter Mondale knew he couldn't do. Mondale sort of pushed the conversation away from the topic, and Ted Kennedy eventually dropped the idea and, in fact, endorsed Mondale as the convention neared. Mondale had decided this much. He wanted to pick an African-American, a Hispanic, or a woman. Now, this is 1984, and although the 70s brought on a whole initial wave of new politics, it was still uh, a long way in 1984 from having many choices of people in these minority groups to choose for something as high as the Vice President of the United States. So there were four principal candidates. If a black politician were chosen, it would certainly be Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los Angeles. If Mondale decided to go with a Hispanic politician for vice president, it would be Henry Cisneros, the mayor of San Antonio, Texas. And if a woman were to be chosen, the most likely choice was Dianne Feinstein, the mayor of San Francisco. In 1984, having decided he wanted to go with one of these groups, there were no significant governors or senators to pick from. There was a fourth choice. Geraldine Ferraro, who had served three terms starting in 1978 in Queens, New York, the heart 
of Archie Bunker country, which had to be considered. Now, before we consider the factors and Walter Mondale's choice, we will leave him there, go in the time travel machine in two today, and look at McCain's selection of Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. In picking Sarah Palin, who served not more than 20 months as Alaska Governor, and before that, two terms as mayor of a small town, with only about 7,000 people, before that, councilwoman for the same town, McCain chose a mayor. Walter Mondale's picks at the time were mayors, but McCain did not need to pick in 2008 among municipal government officials. There was former Governor Christy Whitman, two senators from Maine, Olympia Snow and Susan Collins, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, senator from Texas. Now, Palin was not simply a municipal official. She has been governor, and governors have been very successful in national elections in modern times. Uh, my point, though, is that his choices, rather than Mondale's, were far more robust. But now, back to Walter Mondale in 1984, a few days before the convention would begin, as he and his advisors talked and whittled down the list pretty quickly. Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los Angeles, was a, an inspiring figure, an African-American mayor from one of the largest states and which would certainly be an electoral prize in the 1984 election, was considered by Mondale's advisors to be just too old, 63 years old, although he would remain as mayor of Los Angeles and uh, have that position well into 1992, which would have been the end of a second Mondale-Bradley turn if history had been different. Also, he was seen as a weak campaigner, wouldn't be a strong attacker of the Reagan-Bush ticket. Henry Cisneros, the mayor of San Antonio, Texas, was almost the reverse. He was perhaps too young and too green at 32 years old for the second in command of a country leading at the time of nuclear war. Working against Bradley or Cisneros was the fact that Walter Mondale's wife, Joan, favored a woman. Now, it's not always that such a, an opinion would be influential, but with no polls, no roadmap to follow, no woman, black or Hispanic, had ever been chosen for vice president. The advisors were working on educated guesses about what to do. Women voters loomed large in this election of 1984. It was the one group that Ronald Reagan didn't excel with. It was a group that was growing in numbers with every presidential election since 1976. So pretty quickly it became a choice of Feinstein or Ferraro. Now Mondale's advisors uh, had met Ferraro and didn't like the chemistry. She seemed a little rough around the edges. Feinstein was the council uh, speaker of San Francisco when Mayor Moscone and uh, another council person, called them supervisors in San Francisco, Harvey Milk, uh, was shot by another councilman. It was a horrible event, and uh, Feinstein was, was known nationally for having taken over as mayor of San Francisco at that point. She was a political professional, well-known to many. Mondale's advisors certainly leaned in that direction. Financial vetters were dispatched to San Francisco, and Walter Mondale went to bed pretty much thinking he had chosen his vice presidential running mate. 
But apparently, uh, he woke up the next day and thought about it more. Ferraro's immigrant background was appealing to him. They were going to make this convention in San Francisco about the other America, the America of hardworking people, not the America that Reagan was talking about. Here was a woman that had fought for everything that she got. Nothing was handed to her. Electorally, she came from New York, which was a big state, just like Feinstein came from a big state, California. And an additional factor, Feinstein was the mayor of San Francisco, a city that for the rest of the country seemed to have different moral values. It might not play well to the right. From what little we know about John McCain's decision process, it appears that uh, the choice of Governor Palin was a bit of a last-minute choice, as it was with Mondale. Now, Ferraro was known to be a candidate. She was leaked to the press early on. In fact, her Mondale's advisors had leaked that Ferraro didn't do well in the meetings with Mondale, and that was something that Mondale ended up had to apologize to Ferraro for during the vice presidential selection process. The choice for Mondale of Ferraro was fairly last minute, but it was a choice he made, called up Ferraro, who had now uh, gone to San Francisco to attend the convention, asked her to be his running mate, and history was made. And so as Democrats gathered in San Francisco at the Moscone Center, it was not the mayor of the town, but Geraldine Ferraro, congresswoman from Queens making a speech about immigrants in the American dream. It was a short speech, and while anticipated, it did not have anywhere near the suspense of the Palin speech. The choice of a woman at 1984, according to most observers of this election, was so historic in and of itself that Ferraro could have almost said anything. It was very different from the kind of suspense that was built up for the Palin speech over four days. Of course, some of that suspense being, most of it actually, being created by the campaign itself. And Ferraro was very subtle in her attacks on the Reagan-Bush ticket, unlike Governor Palin. Still, it was a good convention, and the choice was a really good moment for Mondale and for the campaign. It was after the convention, as the Mondale campaign, about 38 points to 53 points in the polls against President Reagan, started having to make their difficult choices about what states they could possibly visit. Should they simply hold the industrial north uh, east and go for the Midwest? Or should they go all over the country and compete with Reagan everywhere? It was at this point that certain reporters started to look into Geraldine Ferraro's husband's real estate dealings. Uh, her husband, John Zaccaro, had done some real estate business in Little Italy, and they wanted to see what partners he had, and, and they were questioned. None of this information was made available to the press. This is 1984. In 2008, any family member would surrender in a minute anything that the press asked for. In fact, they probably wouldn't be chosen by a campaign if they weren't willing to do that. There wouldn't even be a question about it. It would have all been worked out in advance. But this was a little bit of a last-minute choice. And now her husband, who had grudgingly, only grudgingly, com complied to let her have her own career after their marriage and let her run for Congress, with, which put a little bit of strain on him, he just simply said no. He would not release anything about his business. 
He might answer a few questions, but he certainly wasn't going to release his tax returns. What made the whole incident worse is that when reporters questioned Ferraro about what her husband would do, she answered the reporters without telling Mondale or the campaign what her answer would be. Ferraro simply gave this answer to a reporter. I requested that my husband do that, that is, release the tax returns. Right now, the answer is no. Well, that was it. Anytime the press is denied information like that, that becomes the story. And for a few weeks, when the Mondale campaign desperately needed to get any traction it was going to get on a popular incumbent president, this story dominated the news. Walter Mondale grew frustrated. And while she wouldn't, he wouldn't outright demand that Ferraro tell her husband to release the returns, he sort of suggested it, and while all along saying it was, it was certainly her choice. But she could, he could not, on any occasion, defend Ferraro without her husband having released the tax returns to the public, simply because, A, he didn't know what was in it, and B, in the past, presidential candidate, that is, George McGovern, had gotten into a lot of trouble saying he was a thousand percent behind his running mate when he didn't know all the facts, and that running mate had to resign. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. This went on for quite a bit, 
and there was a bit of a marital spat between Ferraro and Zaccaro over the issue. But after some time, Zaccaro got to see that this story was hurting his wife and that there was no way she was going to be vice president and uh, without him releasing something. So he agreed to a meeting with reporters in his accountant's office. And reporters met with him for 10 hours. And unfortunately for Zachary and Ferraro, the, and all the numbers didn't add up, and there were still many questions. So after that meeting, that sort of created another debacle, and they were forced to release the tax returns. When Ferraro did this, it sort of put the problems behind her. But one of the side effects of the tax returns being released is that reporters discovered that this working class fighter from Queens uh, had a net worth of $3.8 million and two houses in the United States and one in the Caribbean. A second story about Ferraro's family uh, and how the, Ferrer- the family had been arrested on a numbers charge, running numbers, in 1944 also hurt her a bit and just was a story that showed that maybe she hadn't been properly vetted. Now, if we compare these revelations to some of the revelations that came out about Sarah Palin, the difference is in mostly how they were handled and the timing. Sarah Palin's revelations came out so early that she could address them forcefully in her speech, while Ferraro's came out after her speech. And uh, the revelations about Palin were pretty well contested and immediately answered by the campaign whereas the Mondale-Ferraro campaign had no answer to some of these questions, and obviously they couldn't see the tax returns like anybody else for a long time. The next interesting moment of the 1984 campaign was a debate in Louisville between President Reagan and former Vice President Walter Mondale. Reagan was expected, of course, a former actor, the great communicator, to clean up in that debate. But Mondale was extremely aggressive, unexpectedly, and caught Reagan off guard. And Reagan had not really prepared adequately for the debate, didn't have facts, didn't have specifics, and sort of uh, rambled a bit, leading to a real question about his age and whether he was too old to seek another term as president. Uh, This gave the Mondale campaign a slight bump in the polls. And now it came time for the vice presidential debate. This had been the third one in U.S. history. Ferraro's performance in that debate against Vice President Bush was, for the most part, deferential. This was 1984. It was the first women running. The campaign was a little conservative about how aggressive uh, Mrs. Ferraro should be. Now, as for Vice President Bush, he took an interesting tack in the debate and decided to go against her as aggressively as she, he would a male opponent. It is uh, likely that part of the reason for this strategy is that George Bush was perceived to be a little bit of a wimp. And there was always that factor, and certainly the factor going four years later into his own presidential campaign. For Ferraro, who had been a lawyer, she uh, approached the debate that way. She gave a good performance. There was one moment in the debate where Vice President Bush offered to instruct her as to where Iraq and Lebanon was, and she said, I would appreciate it if you would not patronize me. And that was a little good jab uh, for Ferraro, a good counterpunch, and it sort of um, 
forced Vice President Bush to back down a bit. But it certainly, this was not the main event. This was not uh, a knockout blow for women or anything like that. After the debate, there was a little bit of a controversy when Bush actually referred to kicking a little ass at the debate. Uh, again, I, this is a politician who probably felt he could get away with these statements because it was 1984 and uh, the Republican ticket was a, appealing to women but also appearing to a, a good chunk of male voters. And Bush was seen as a wimp, and so anything he could say to help that, he tried to do. It was a little bit controversial at the time. So the approach of the Mondale Ferraro campaign was very deferential and to let the historic moment of choosing the first women vice president speak for itself to a certain extent. And they did not have Ferrara really become the, quote, attack dog of the campaign. It would appear to be a contrast with uh, Governor Palin's role in this election. Because John McCain is very differential in, in a lot of ways as a, as a campaigner, and because he comes from uh, a kind of a maverick stance in the party, and Governor Palin represents the red meat Republican part of the party. She's obviously decided to be more aggressive. I would throw a question out looking at the 1984 election and now as to whether Joe Biden shouldn't think about approaching the vice presidential debate a little more aggressively than he has uh, in his comments in recent weeks about Governor Palin. Have we reached a point where women are political competitors and we should just simply treat them as such um, and not do anything different than we would do with our male uh, debating opponents? And has Governor Palin opened it up to a certain extent by being so aggressive in attacking Obama in her acceptance speech? The Mondale-Ferraro ticket had one of the worst electoral college victories in American history, carrying only... Walter Mondale's home state of Minnesota and the District of Columbia. Geraldine Ferraro did not contribute to that loss. The loss would have been just as devastating had he chose almost any other vice president. His choices about where to appear and where to allot resources, if they were concentrated, he might have won a few more states, Walter Mondale. That kind of exaggerated the defeat to a certain extent. Ferraro was not really a factor in the actual voting in 1984. The economy, the performance of President Reagan, the likability of President Reagan, and their lack of desire to replace him with Walter Mondale. That was the real crux of the election. It will remain to be seen if Governor Sour Palin of Alaska will have any impact on this election, or will it be just surface-level talk, obviously for a spin, for buzz, for the media purposes, it's been a tremendous event. But will it really impact voters going to the poll? We do know this. In the election, where picking a woman for the vice presidency was many, many times more historic and many, many times more radical, it did not have such an impact. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening. Website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.